Well, church family, if you will, take your Bibles and turn with me to the second chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, As we are week three into our walk through the book of John, uh, this segment we're calling Who is Jesus? A couple of weeks ago, we introduced him in John's prologue as the beginning, uh, as the Word made flesh. Last week, we talked about John the Baptist's testimony that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And today we're going to be looking at the sign, a sign that was performed at a wedding. And so as a pastor, I've been ministering for 26 years, I have done my fair share of officiating at weddings. As a matter of fact, I'm somewhere probably north, I haven't exactly counted, probably north of 100, maybe getting close to 150 uh, weddings that I've officiated. So I've seen a few things. You think about it, you experience all kinds of emotions at a wedding. Man, some people are amped up. Some people are nervous to be there. For a lot of young people, they've never really stood in front of a crowd before. So yes, I have had the groomsmen who did what you tell them not to do, locked his knees, fainted, right? Right into the front pew, he tumbled. It was actually kind of poetic. So we just kind of ushered him down to the front pew, right? And the, the service went on and we rolled with it. I've had the wrong song played at the wrong time, had one wedding in which the tuxes all showed up just a couple of hours before the wedding and they were all different colors. And so we rolled with it, right? We made a joke about it. We laughed. We had fun. Uh, there's all kinds of crazy stuff that happens at weddings. One time I was told, I have a crazy uncle. You're the guy looking at the congregation. I need you to keep your eyes on him. As if I don't have enough to do, right? We'll watch out for the crazy family members uh, at, uh, at the wedding. As if I was going to fly off the platform and tackle the guy. I don't know what they expected me to do. They just, I guess, wanted to give me a heads up. But one of my favorite wedding stories actually comes from a wedding that I was actually in. It was my brother's wedding. My brother Marty got married in central Indiana back in 2002. And so, as has been often the case with family members, and I married a lot of our youth group kids over the years, a lot of my daughters have had the opportunity to be in the wedding party. And so, my daughter Eliza had just turned two years old, and so she was one of the flower girls. And so I want to show you a picture of her, right? Just how adorable she was. Oh, isn't she cute? So... Just in that white dress, and you know, she did exactly what she was supposed to do. She's been such a little firstborn from the time, you know, she she was born, you know, always following her cues. And so she put the flowers very strategically down the aisle and up on the platform. And if you'll notice, there's this look in her eye, however, in that picture. Because at two years old, her favorite television show was Barney. Anybody remember Barney, the purple dinosaur? All right. Kids loved him. As a parent, I was personally kind of terrified of Barney. But the reality is, is Barney, you know, teaches kids things like the cleanup song. Anybody remember the cleanup song, right? So a little song, right? A little manipulative tool to teach kids to clean up their toys. And so Eliza was a fan of the cleanup song. So she's sitting up there all of five minutes into the ceremony, you know, with nothing to do. She's got her basket in her hand. She looks down at this mess that's on the platform. Well, it needs to be cleaned up. So she begins to reach over and put the petals back in the basket. Well, as you'll note, she was not the only flower girl. Another flower girl, a little bit older, knows you're supposed to leave them. So she says, Eliza, leave them. Eliza's like, no, it's cleanup time, right? She starts singing the little song, clean up, clean up, everybody, everywhere, right? Well, now the girl is like, something has to happen. And so the girl reaches over and grabs Eliza. What's in Eliza's hand? Her basket. She takes that basket, she swings and whacks the girl, right? At this point, we got WWE going on on the platform. So my wife was on the front row, so I was like, now's the time, right? Come get her. So she scoops her up, right? Everybody laughs. The wedding goes on. We get back on track. 
But it's still the story we're telling almost 20 years later. And here's what I tell couples about their wedding. Because they're all nervous and they're all amped up. you got some bridezillas in the mix sometimes, all of the things. And I tell them, relax. At the end of the day, we're going to say your vows. You're going to be married before God and most of your friends and family. And I tell them, anything that doesn't go right, anything that goes wrong is the story you'll be telling 20 years from now. If your wedding goes off without a hitch, you got no good stories, right? Everybody loves a good wedding story. Something goes crazy. Something goes wrong. There is something that almost went drastically wrong at a wedding 2,000 years ago. And we're still talking about it today. Why? Because it's where Jesus performed the first of his signs. Will you stand with me in honor of God's word as we look at John chapter 2. The story of the wedding in Cana in Galilee. Now on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them, so they filled them to the brim Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and he told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you, you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this. The first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they stayed there only a few days. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, we ask earlier in the song we sang for you to open up our eyes in wonder. Today, as we revisit this incredible story, the story full of the fingerprints of your identity, of your nature, of your power, I pray that our eyes would be opened up in wonder and we would see you for who you really are and we would recognize the abundance and lavish nature of your grace. So God, be with us. Open up our eyes, our ears, our lives, and our hearts to you in this place. And it's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So it's fascinating to me that in John's gospel, the ministry of Jesus is not introduced with him preaching or teaching. The ministry of Jesus is not introduced with a a healing. It's introduced instead at a wedding. And we're going to talk about why this is so important. As a matter of fact, John uses this to introduce us to the entire section of his gospel that scholars call the book of signs. Now, two-thirds of John's gospel, as we're going to see, is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. But this section from chapter 2 to chapter 12, there are stories woven throughout, but there are seven key signs that John gives to point to the reality that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior, the promised one. 
And I want us to think for a minute about how signs work, because what John tells us here is Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. And as I mentioned earlier, his gospel is not as much chronological as it is built, especially this section, around these seven signs. So let's think for a minute how signs work. Let's say that you are headed to Nashville. And you want to go up there for an evening. Maybe you're going to have a nice dinner. Maybe you're going to go to a concert or a hockey game. Not going to be going to any football games the rest of this year, but let's not go there this morning, right? Derail us. And so instead, let's say you get there, and as so often happens, I-65 is shut down. There's a wreck. You've got to find another way. So what do you begin? You get off the interstate, and you start looking for signs. You finally find a sign, right? Nashville, this way, you know, 20, 25 miles, whatever. And you're like, yes, there's the sign. It's pointing us in the right direction. That's what you do. You use that sign as a marker to say, okay, we're headed to our destination. What you don't do is say, oh, look, we found the sign. You get out, you grab your phone, you take a picture of the sign, you take a selfie with the sign, and then you say to yourself and your date, right, man, what an incredible experience that was. Now let's go home. You see, the signs of Jesus work the same way. The miracles of Jesus, and we need to understand this, are not circus tricks, The miracles of Jesus were not done so that he could show off. The miracles of Jesus were done to meet a need in a moment, but point to a greater kingdom reality about who he is. So in all of these miracles, in all of these stories of Jesus, we're always looking for the signs that help us know the way to our destination, which is knowing Jesus. And so there's something so powerful Something so powerful about this miracle that it said these disciples who he had called to walk with him, it's at this moment that they believe. And so we need to lean in to this first miracle as well because it sets the stage for all the rest of the signs. What was it about this sign, as John said, that revealed the glory of Jesus? Something about this revealed, right? The glory of Jesus. Number one is this, Jesus rescues a wedding in danger. Jesus rescues a wedding in danger. Now, Jewish weddings were different than our weddings. I can't overstate that fact enough. They were long and lengthy, often very large. We think that this was probably a pretty well-attended wedding because there were six of these massive stone jars that were used for purification. We'll talk about this more in a minute, but when in that era, people had to wash their hands and feet, of course, practical reasons, they're dusty, but the Jews of the first century were really in uh, to purification. And so this was important, but it gives us a clue, right? There was a lot of people at this wedding. Jesus's ministry had not gone public yet, so he's probably not invited to this one based on prestige. Instead, it's highly likely that he was related to the person being married and an extended family member kind of thing, or at least they were very good family friends. And so basically Jesus comes to this wedding as his mother's married plus one. It's likely that Joseph, his earthly father, had died at this point. Uh, And so Jesus comes to this wedding in which they have some kind of connection. And during this wedding, these weddings in the first century, they operated differently than ours. We have the reception after the ceremony. But in that era, what they would do was when the groom was finally ready and there were all of these exacting specifications, he had to have the house ready, he had to prove himself to the bride's family, all of these things, then the groomsmen would go get the bride. 
That's why there's these word pictures that Jesus gives, right, Uh, about his return, why it's going to be sudden, like the groomsmen, right, waking up the bride. And so they would go get the bride, and then they would proceed, they have a little parade, and they would end up at the groom's house. And there they would begin the feast. And after the first day of feasting that evening, they would have the ceremony by which they were officially betrothed. And man, they put the bells and whistles out for this. I mean, they dressed the groom and the bride in the finest of robes that they could afford. They literally put crowns. They would make some kind of a crown, whether it was floral or out of a precious metal, and they would put it on their heads. They treated them literally like kings and queens for a day. In an era in which most of the people were very poor, in which a lot of the people struggled, this was the pinnacle of their personal life. Like it never got any better than it did for this day. As a matter of fact, there was a tradition that anything the groom and bride said was law on that day. So they would say stuff and you'd have to do it. And they played with that. They ran with that. Depending on uh, the wealth, the affluence of the family, this could last one day or often it lasted seven. And you think you've sat through some long weddings, right? But it was a social, cultural event And man, they were raucous. They danced, they sang, they had all of these traditions that were rich and that were deep. And so it was very different than our weddings today. And so when Mary approaches Jesus and says this, they don't have any wine. It's a serious deal. Like not only is it a social faux pas, just like it would be to to run out of food and drink at a wedding reception today, this could cause serious shame and embarrassment. And first century scholars will tell you, and this is interesting to me, I don't even know how this would have come about, but the guests could sue the hosts if the wine ran out. Like you literally could be subjected to a lawsuit because they took hospitality so seriously during that era. So understand what's at stake in this moment for this wedding party. Like not only would they be embarrassed and humiliated that the wine ran out, But at the same time, this would not be getting your marriage off to a good start. Think about it. Whatever happens at your marriage, right? The family and the townspeople are going to talk about the rest of your life. Remember their wedding? Yeah, they ran out of wine. Those people are losers, right? That is not the way you want your life together to start. And so I believe Mary is filled with both concern and compassion. She does what we should all do. She goes to the one who she knows can do something about it. And it's interesting to me that she doesn't make a request or an ask per se, although she definitely asks, doesn't she? We all have mothers. And we know that when our mothers tell us the trash can is full, that that is a fact. And yet, I believe they are also stating something about what we should do, correct? When your mother came to you as a kid and said, your room is filthy, was that just, okay, mom, cool. Yep, I agree. What would happen to you if you didn't jump up right and start cleaning your room? I remember one time my mother said, the grass is so high, we might lose a neighbor child in it. (laughs) All right, mom, I'm firing up the lawnmower. All right, I'm picking up what you're laying down, right? But I love it because I think it captures Mary's heart. She wants to make the ask of Jesus, but she's also respectful about who he is. And I think that's important for us to remember. Likewise, Jesus' response to her, it doesn't read in English exactly the way that I think it should because it's hard to translate. But what Jesus is saying here, right, he's not being disrespectful. It sounds to us, especially when we use the word woman, right, it sounds disrespectful. We know Jesus never sinned. 
Jesus never dishonored his mother and his father. So when he says, what does that have to do with you and me, woman, a better translation would be ma'am. What Jesus is saying is, is this our deal, ma'am? And then he says this, my hour has not yet come. Now, every time in the Gospel of John, he says hour, it's a reference to his crucifixion. The hour is coming. He uses it seven times. So what Jesus is saying, in essence, is, I understand your request, but don't rush me, ma'am, because you know who I am. And you know that once my ministry goes public, once people know who I am, that begins a chain and a sequence of events that will lead ultimately to my death, to my crucifixion. And so you have, I think, this very tender, maybe even a little bit playful, right, but very honoring exchange between Mary and Jesus in this moment. And then Mary gives the all-time best advice to the servants. This should be underlined and highlighted for all of us. Do whatever he tells you. That goes for all of us. Whatever Jesus tells us, we need to do. Why? Because she's confident that Jesus will handle this in the right way. She's confident that she has made the information be known and that Jesus is going to know what to do. And so what does he do? Of course, he fills these water pots to the brim. And so I love this because Jesus is going to, of course, save the day in the moment of this wedding. And what happens here is notice that he doesn't recite some hocus pocus. He doesn't pull a wand out of his robe like Harry Potter, right? And wave it over the stone jars. None of that takes place. Why? Because he's the creator. John has already told us that. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. One commentator noted, right? The wine simply, the water simply becomes wine. Each year, he turns water into wine in the agricultural and fermentation process. Here, he just sped it up a little bit. And it's an amazing truth to think about the fact that we serve a God who creates. A God who has all creative power. I love what 18th century British poet Alexander Pope said. Get this. He said, the conscious water saw its master and it blushed. The conscious water saw its master and it blushed. What a beautiful and poetic way to put this. And so Jesus meets the need in the moment. What is the sign? Because again, as I told you, the point in and of itself, right, isn't just merely the miracle. It's there's something that Jesus is pointing to. Don't miss the fact that his first miracle took place at a wedding. Because all throughout the Bible, weddings are metaphors for God's relationship with his people. It goes all the way back to Genesis 2, Adam and Eve. All throughout the Old Testament, especially in the era of the prophets, the prophets reminded God's people, God has made a covenant with you just as you covenant with one another in marriage. You might be unfaithful. We think of the the prophet and the story of the prophet Hosea in particular and other words of Jeremiah and Isaiah calling out the people for their unfaithfulness. But God is always faithful to you. When Jesus burst on the scene in his preaching many times, he would refer to himself as the groom and his church the bride. The Apostle Paul picked that up in his teachings in Ephesians chapter 5 in particular when he reminded us, yes, there are principles that are biblical that need to be lived out in our marriages. And he says, men, you are to love your wives. Women, you are to respect your husbands. 
And then he says, but I'm telling you a mystery. This is about Christ and the church. In other words, Paul is telling us that marriage is a lived out word picture of God's love for his chosen people. We need to remember this. Every couple that I've ever officiated a wedding for, I have reminded them that your wedding is not just about your happiness. Your wedding is a picture of God's love for his people. That your marriage vows that you take, you need to take seriously. Why? Because people are going to look at you, they know what you believe, and they're going to say, let's see if they can live it out through their marriage vows. Our marriages should be walking witnesses to the power of Christ, to the power of his love, his sacrificial love for us. And so there is so much at stake in our weddings. I believe in all my heart, and I watch this as a pastor all the time, that Satan hates two things more than anything else. He hates the institution of the home that's built on the foundation of a marriage. So he will bring the full firepower of hell against our marriages and against our churches. Why? Because they are the conduits for the gospel. When they're functioning the way they should be, there's nothing like them in the universe. And people are drawn to the gospel because of them. But when they're falling apart and struggling, then it becomes difficult for us to be confident in our witness and in our faith. So understand that. Did God design marriage for us to be happy and whole? Yes. Yes, but he designed it to be a picture of his love with his people. So don't miss the point of this sign taking place at a wedding. Jesus himself blessed marriage with his presence and first miracle at the wedding in Cana in Galilee is something we all say as preachers at the beginning of our ceremonies. Why? Because the sign is this. Jesus rescues the wedding which was in peril, foreshadowing his rescue of the bride, his church. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus is the one who brings life when there's no life. Jesus is the one who rescues and saves when things are in danger of going off the rails. And this leads us to our second point this morning, which is this. It's that Jesus fills what is empty. Jesus filled what was empty. And so I want to put a picture up there of those six stone jars. So you have at least a mental idea of what they kind of might have looked like. As we know, in the ancient Middle East and still to this day, most of the containers are actually made out of mud or clay that's hardened and fired in a kiln. That's kind of your typical everyday stuff. And so stone jars were more rare, they were more expensive, they were more difficult to make. But they were super important for the purification rites of the Jews for this reason. The ones made out of clay, they would break down. And so those little bits of clay and mud would get in the water or the wine and contaminate it. To the Jewish people, their purification rites, they wanted everything to be as pure as possible. And so it was stone jars, and John lets us know that, that were used in these purification rites. So as people came to the party, they at least had to wash their hands and their feet in order to enter the wedding party to be ritually pure. Coming to us from the tradition of the people called the Essenes, the people who gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have a lot of information about their purification rites. This was a big deal to them. And so these stone jars represented something. They represented the old covenant. They represented people's attempt to fill themselves by following rites of religion. Now hear me say this carefully. There is nothing wrong in the world with wanting to be holy and to be pure before God. But what this passage is calling out is the reality that religion in and of itself cannot save So Christless religion leaves you empty. We also know that in the Bible, the number of completeness or wholeness is what? Seven. 
How many stone jars were there? Six. You see, without Jesus, the old covenant is incomplete. And so what a stunning picture. Not only that, we know that these jars were not the only thing that were carved out of stone in the first century. It's a rocky landscape. What else was carved out of stone? Tombs. And so I believe this is another foreshadowing. This is another hint because Jesus is going to take something that was empty, devoid of life, and he was going to do what? Fill it. Fill it to the brim. As a matter of fact, fill it to the point of overflowing abundance, as we'll talk about in just a moment. And this is such an important picture for us to understand because there are two ways. I believe there were two crowds of people at this wedding, just like there are two crowds of people everywhere. Those who would try religion They would try to get to God by their own practices, their own rituals, their own made-up spirituality. I'm going to grab some of this and that, and I'm going to throw it in the jar that is my life, and I'm going to hope that it fills me. What's the problem? The same problem they had at the wedding. The wine runs out. You can't ever, right, fill yourself to the brim. You can't ever do it all in your own strength. The other type of people at the party are those who look at the wine and the dancing and the festivities, and they say, that's the way that I'm going to fill my life. I'm going to fill my life with that stuff. And so they have Christless irreligion. I'm going to forget about all the religion stuff, and I'm just going to make my own way, and I'm going to live it up, and I'm going to have a great time. What's the problem there? Same issue. The wine runs out. Your life will run out. You can't have enough experiences. You can't have enough fun. You can't have enough all of these things in order to save you. So in this moment, Jesus is exposing the reality that in our hearts we are often empty. And he fills what was empty with his presence. And you guys know that I'm a fan of this picture that hangs in my office. It's a reminder to me of just a simple cup. And there is the overflowing water, right? Jesus says, I am the living water. It hangs there as a reminder to me. But as I was studying this week, I said, you know what? I think there's something even bigger happening here in this passage. And here's the word picture that came to mind. Anybody ever shaken up a soda can? Here's what it looks like. It explodes, right? It can't be contained. You shake up that bottle, it rolls around in the back of your minivan or whatever. You go to open it and boom, it is full of life. It explodes all over the place. And that's what was taking place in the ministry of Jesus. It was a foreshadowing of his resurrection power. Romans 8, 11 says that same resurrection power lives in you and me by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the only one who can fill us. Ephesians 1, 23 says he fills all things in all ways. And this leads us to our third point this morning, which is this, is, is that Jesus brings joy and abundance. He brings joy and abundance Think about the quantity that's listed here. It tells us that these massive stone jars held 20 to 30 gallons. So that's 180 gallons. I don't know about you, but if my wife and I are going to a wedding, often we're like, oh man, what do we get the bride and groom? And so what do we do today? We have wedding registries, right? You go on there and you mark things. I don't think that this couple would have thought to have put on their registry 180 gallons of wine. But that's what Jesus gave them as a wedding gift. And what is that a picture of? His abundance, the abundance of his grace, the overabundance or superabundance of what he can bring and what he can do. As we'll see in the story of the fish and loaves, right? Jesus 
His grace is not only sufficient, but it is overflowing. And the people there, they didn't do anything to earn it. They didn't do anything to deserve it. It simply was. People have tried to do the math on this and said this equates somewhere between two and 3,000 glasses of wine. That's way more than even if the party went for a whole week that they could stand. And so a lot of commentaries think that Jesus, right, not only fulfilled the need, blessed the family, didn't make them an embarrassment, but also set them up for success in life. Because if they sold that wine, they would have money to fuel their new life together. Super abundance, overabundance. What does John 10.10 say? The thief comes to seal and kill and destroy. But what does Jesus say? I have come so that you may have life and life more what? Abundantly. Man, what a moment at this wedding. As it says very clearly, right? Only Mary, the disciples, and the servants knew. What a beautiful move by Jesus, right? Not a full revelation yet of who he was, but to the people close to the situation, they knew it. They knew what a miracle this was. It was not only a miracle of quantity, but also one of quality. He saved the best to last. And if you think about it, this is totally the opposite of the way that life works. Everything else in life that we pursue, we get it, and then what happens? It diminishes over time. I'm getting to be an old man, right? I'm in my mid-40s. So suffering after COVID, I don't have all my taste back. What I'm discovering is, is I can't taste things I used to be able to taste. So I put a little bit more Cajun seasoning on everything I eat, right? Why? So that I can taste it. It's the same with life. Over time, our tastes diminish. Your appetite for adventure begins to wane. Your health begins to fail you. If we're trusting in this life to bring, it li- bring us life, it can't. But Jesus is the one thing in this universe that when you are rightly related to him, your life grows deeper, richer, stronger. Your world gets bigger and bigger and better all of the time. I know there are a lot of you sitting there today and it's, struggle, it's a struggle in our mind to get our, our mindset in a first century Jewish wedding. But here's something most of you in this room can relate to. A Baptist potluck. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. And so I grew up in these small churches in Illinois, and we found some excuse after almost every church service to have a potluck, right? It was somebody's anniversary, somebody's birthday, you know, something to celebrate and recognize. And man, these ladies could cook. These guys could grill some serious meat. It was a great time that we had at these potlucks. And there was the story that went around, and I don't know if it was apocryphal. That's a fancy word for made up, by the way. Or if it really happened. But in the, among the pastors that I grew up listening to in South Central Illinois, there was a story that circulated about a little widow woman who had a unique request in her will. As she laid in her casket, she wanted an open casket funeral. But she wanted to be holding a fork in her hand. And she said, here's the reason why. Because everybody knows that every good potluck After you've had your main course, you've had your salad, you've had your meats, all the things, you throw away your styrofoam plate, but you hold on to your fork. Why? Because the best is yet to come. Now that's a picture we can relate to, amen? And that's what the chief, the headmaster of the ceremonies is saying. He's saying, you have saved the best for last. Who does that? Everybody knows the trick, right? You feed them the good stuff first, right? And then after their appetite has been met, then you bring out the cheap stuff. Not so with Jesus. Life with him gets richer. It gets deeper. It gets better. It gets more and more abundant as we go. And this is important, brothers and sisters, because we need to live joyful lives. 
Let's go ahead and be honest. We have a reputation as Christians of being no fun. And we need to work on that. And I'm not talking about worldly kind of fun. Clearly, Jesus is not pointing to alcohol excess, right? Alcoholic excess as the key. The point, again, is the sign to point to his abundance, the abundance of his grace. But you and I, secure, lavished with that grace, appreciating it, being thankful for it every day, remembering in the gospel what we have, we need to live joyful lives because it matters to our witness. We have lost brothers and sisters who are looking for life in all of the things that take life when you and I know the source of all life. And so we need to live it. This is important for our witness, for our gospel conversations. The pastor, J.M. Boyce, says this. I love this quote. He says, Some Christians go around with grim looks and long faces. This is my favorite sentence. If they find themselves in the company of someone else who's having a good time, they immediately suspect that the cause of the fun is either illegal, immoral, or fattening. Jesus was not like that. He did not condemn those who were enjoying themselves and he was not jealous of them. As a result, he was welcomed at their gatherings and those who had invited him listened to his teachings. Are you like that? If you are, you may find that people are not only pleased with your company, they may also be willing to listen to your testimony. You can share with them where you found life, where you found completeness. Your jar was empty, but it's now been filled with a living God. So as I said, I love it that John's gospel, Jesus' ministry starts with this story. These three huge clues, the wedding, the water, and the wine. I love the joy of this scene. I love what it teaches us about Jesus. Yes, he was meeting the immediate need of this family friend. And yet at the same time, he used this to point to these deeper and higher and greater realities about who he was. And he gave his disciples... A preview of coming attractions. He gave them a sneak peek of what was to come. Ever watched a movie trailer and it's so dramatic? You're like, I can't wait to see that. At this moment, John tells us Jesus' glory was revealed and the disciples did what? They believed. They believed. It was at this moment that the disciples said, Jesus is who he says he is and I want to follow him so wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I love the joyous picture of a wedding. I think it's something we need to recapture in our culture today. And so my little girls, as they were growing up, they tagged along with their daddy as I officiated a lot of weddings. The problem with that is, is my girls have got this composite incredible wedding in their mind of all the favorite things they've ever seen. And I'm like, your daddy's a preacher, right? We'll see what we can do when that day comes. But you know, I got to be honest, you think about the joyous festivities, you think about the fun of the wedding, you think about the food, you think about the drink, you think about all of these elements, you think about the dancing, and I got to confess, I'm not much of a dancer, probably a big shocker to most of you. So if you want me to go with you to the club or the honky tonk, I'm probably not your guy. But you know what can get me on the dance floor? A wedding reception and my little girls saying, Daddy, dance with me. Here's a picture of Eliza just a few years later, right? Yeah, all right. Most people are like, Jay, you're like Hitch. You just need to keep it right here, right? Don't, don't do much more than that, okay? But here's the reality. I love the joy of a wedding, and here's the reason why. Did you know that in the Bible, the wedding feast is the word picture of what is to come for those of us who are in Christ? 
the joy, the relationship, everything. It all comes together. And I want you to hear this in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. John, same guy who wrote the gospel, says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first time. The first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. How cool is that? And then Revelation 19, 9, then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He said to me, these words of God are true. Will you bow your heads with me this morning? Because I want you to ask yourself this question. Do you believe? Do you see the signs that they point to who Jesus is? His filling power, his resurrection power, his miraculous power. His rescuing and saving power. The disciples believed. Do you? Because the only way you get an invitation to the marriage feast of the Lamb is through belief in Him and in Him alone. And so I love, I love this story on so many levels because it teaches us so much about who Jesus is. I don't know if you can tell, I've had fun preaching this one. Because it, exhibits to me the fullness, the greatness, the abundance, and the joy of who Jesus is. I'm afraid that too often we miss that. So today I pray that your hearts are as full as those stone jars. I pray that your joy is complete because Jesus is that seven stone jar who perfects what is lacking. I pray that everything that you find, you find fulfilled, not in your pursuits, but in your pursuit of him. And so today there is joy in this house because we serve a God who saves, a God who fills, the God who was, the God who is, and the God who is coming again. And I don't know about you, but I want to spend all the time I can warming up for that eternal party. I can't wait. The more we walk in this broken world, the more I look at my own sin and brokenness, The more I realize what this world needs, the more I long for that day when we all get to sit around the biggest wedding feast you've ever seen and we get to enjoy one another. We get to enjoy the moment of celebration and more importantly, we get to enjoy being in the presence of Jesus forever and ever. So with that in mind, church, do you believe? Do you have joy? Lord Jesus, thank you that in you is an abundance of all things. Because of you, there is joy in this house today. And we, just like a Jewish wedding feast, won't be quiet. It's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Stand with us as we sing these words in response this morning.